Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. And that's Chris Adulu. What if animal intelligence is more of a liability than a gift? Justin Gregg is a psychologist working in the field of dolphin communication and the author of If Nietzsche Was a Narwhal, a philosophical investigation into animals, humans, and whether our great cognitive gifts might actually be more trouble than they're worth. We hosted a wild and freewheeling conversation between comedian Robin Ince and Justin a few weeks back. Here it is. Now, we, because we were talking about this just before we started, we were talking about uh, John C. Lilly, who was, for many people, when we hear about dolphin cognition, the things they know about are him, his work, his trying to teach dolphins what seemed to be to actually speak kind of human language, and then also some of the, what we might call sexual fracas that seemed to be around that as well. So, I would imagine that dolphin cognition and communication projects have changed somewhat since the kind of more LSD-laced 1960s. They certainly have. I think after the 60s, there was a bit of a lull after Lily because people there's a pushback. They People did not like his sort of brand of, of crazy science. And so it sat dormant for a little while until the 80s. Uh, and then you started anew with these studies to see... Uh, not if dolphins could learn English, but if they could learn proper symbol systems like you saw with the great apes. And we started finding things out. And so, yeah, so the modern study of dolphin communication focused on that. And now it's really switched over into studying their their communication systems and how they communicate between themselves. And that was something Lily himself at the time was less interested in. So it's definitely gone through an evolution in the past 60 years. I mean, to some extent, is this really what the book's looking at, which is for... Perhaps a long period of time have scientists been judging intelligence by how much can we turn an animal into something like us, as opposed to actually looking at the intelligence of the animal, which may be very different, but equally adapted so well for its environment. That seems to be it. I mean, this whole thing of is this animal intelligent is really just asking the question, does it think like a human? Can it talk like a human? That was the focus for such a long time. And in the 60s, it was this this alien issue was actually a big deal. Like if intelligent life visits us, how do we learn to communicate? How do we learn to recognize it? And so animals were sort of a proxy for the aliens. And we're trying to see if we can get them to speak and see how much they know. But that was always in the context of how humans think. Can they do human stuff? And if they do human stuff, we label them as intelligent and then call it a day. Uh, the modern science is less interested in that. We're, I think, more interested in understanding how animals evolve to be in their niche to do the things that they do and what are they capable of in ways that are relevant to them and their intelligence. And I'm sorry, I'm going to, I knew this would happen. You, you're sending me off on, on tangents, which we'll get to question one eventually. But I remember Carl Sagan saying that the thing that worried him about extraterrestrial communication was exactly that, that we can't even communicate with the most intelligent species on this earth. And how do you feel when you look at these different forms of communication and different forms of cognition? What are your hopes that we would be able to communicate with something which had evolved in such a different environment on another planet, somewhere else in this galaxy or the universe? Yeah, I, so for our human, we know that there's a mind behind it translating our thoughts into language. For the animals on this planet, we're sort of on the fence as to the extent of the mind that could be turned into language. And so we don't think that they think the same way we do and that their symbol systems work uh, like human language. So an alien then presumably has a mind that can figure out how to do interstellar space travel, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And then the question becomes, if they communicate with each other or with us, can we figure out the medium? How do we get the message out of them? 
Which is why they do things like send up mathematical things into space, because you figure mathematical things are universal. They can translate it in some way. So it's really, and Sagan was talking about that too, cracking the code, figuring out the message to get at the mind behind it. I always love that line. I remember interviewing Brian Greene uh, a few years ago, possibly for the How To Academy. And there's a line in one of his most recent books in which he says, sometimes I have a nightmare where the extraterrestrials turn up and they see some of the things we've written and they go, oh, yes, we used to be so naive. We thought mathematics was the language of the universe, too. <laughs> a terrifying idea for any mathematician, I, I, I think. <laughs> that is true. Yeah, and it's always uh, this idea of do they think like us, and it and that thinking originates in the biology, right? We always think of natural selection as the only way to get to that mind, but there are other ways of thinking how a being might exist and think that don't involve that, and therefore communication and thinking and math might be concepts that really are rooted in our biology as opposed to rooted in all the possibilities of a mind out there in the universe. So yeah, we, math could just be a <laughs> juvenile like endeavor on our part what actually first drew you to being fascinated with animal cognition do you, do you remember at what age it was or the first kind of stories you read that you thought this is something that i want to spend a lot of time with we had animals in my house growing up and my mother was in the humane society so always looking out for like abandoned cats and dogs so just empathy towards animals and being concerned with whether or not they're happy or suffering that was a big deal in my life and then when I started to experience wild animals, especially whales, like humpback whales, you know, just from whale watching, I just was fascinated with how, how big they were, you know, or and knowing that they are mammals and that have some kind of intelligence. So I just, I was interested in them. But then my career took a weird path in that I didn't really do science at university uh, or, or math. I did linguistics because that seemed interesting to me. And then I became fascinated with this question of, well, how did human language evolve? How is it different from the way animals communicate? And then I looped back around to whales and dolphins. Now, that's interesting on the, on the linguistic side of it as well is uh, it, in this book, of course, you look at a lot of different uh, animal experiences, as, mu as much as we can understand that from obviously observing from the outside. I mean, that's, of course, even a problem with looking at other human beings. We are only able to really observe from the outside. And I wonder how much you think about the importance for you or where you've got to in terms of the importance of having an internal monologue. Because I know that some philosophers and some scientists see an internal monologue, that nature of consciousness, that nature of that, that level of intelligence that you're dealing with in the book needs some kind of, of inner dialogue as well. That's This is the question of what even is thought to begin with. And there is no answer. It's a fascinating field. I'll just mention that I talk about eight, uh, you know, aphantasia in the book. That's the inability to close your eyes and picture an image. And so we often think of animals as thinking in images. So they imagine a scenario, you know, where you know where the nut is behind the tree, and they imagine themselves going behind it, and then that's why they go behind it. But it certainly is possible that they don't use, like me, they don't use images to think at all, and they don't use language to think. So then the question is, well, what is thinking? Uh, and within psychology, for our just for you and I, we know that we can execute behaviors without that monologue and without vision, at which point thinking is a third thing, independent, sitting behind image, images or language and monologues in your brain. So there's no reason to think every animal isn't having lots of complicated thoughts, but no language and no visual thinking. I find that the aphantasia element, I think, is so interesting where, because I only found out, it's only two or three years ago, I think, reading a book about William Blake, that I found out this this thing, which is, uh, you know, this idea that not being able to picture, if I say sunflower, that some people now watching this will, if they close their eyes, they'll be able to picture a sunflower, but other people are not able to picture uh, a sunflower, but that doesn't stop them. For instance, people might think that artists have lots in their, their head, internal imagination, but I've read that actually quite a few artists it seems have a fantasia. It's almost as if by the lack of having it as an internal, they they have to externalize it. Yeah, and it, it you know there's a there's a Disney animator who has a fantasia who's just brilliant. So it, it's certainly not a hindrance, and maybe it does drive you forward. For me, I I don't I don't quite understand yet if I can hear music in my head the same way my wife does. She claims it sounds just like the radio, whereas I don't I don't hear that at all. But I do a lot of musical things. Like, I love producing music. And maybe the drive is, like you're talking about, precisely because there's nothing in my head. I have to externalize it. So I have to get it out and then experience it back again through creation. 
So maybe it is a driver for my music creation. Well, we should get into the book now. Sorry, this is for everyone watching. We are going to, because there's, there's just so much that I want to talk to you about, because I just find it so fun. And as I said, everything leads to another tangent. That's, uh, I mean, that's almost part, you know, one of the first things you talk about in, in the book is the web of possibilities that human beings have and what other species that we, we are able to see that when something is thrown at you, when an opportunity, when something is visually, when you notice it, that you don't necessarily go, here is the single choice or the binary choice. You There are a multitude of possibilities that we face every single day. Yes, it, it seems that is a unique thing to humans to some extent. Other species probably do it, but not to our extent, which is if you if you hear a sound, there's the example in the book, an animal usually has learned associations. So things that's encountered in the past that could make that sound, and then that is what it uses to make its decision. Whereas you or I, we could, we could sit for the rest of our lives and come up with a list of things that make sound in the woods. And that would include like, you know, a shark falling out of a blimp. That was what the sound was. Like, it's just an endless supply because we can do that. Whereas I don't think other animals can conceptualize along those same lines. And that makes us very powerful thinkers. Now, I'm so glad that you've brought up the film series Sharknado, but I'm not going to go down uh, that particular time. I work it into every also... interview. <laughs> I would love that if every it was just an opportunity to find out that actually you have shares in the Sharknado <laughs> uh, right. series. Um, the uh, I, I wanted to also ask why uh, in in terms of uh, Nietzsche as well. What was it about? I mean, Nietzsche, of course, is someone who's been hugely misrepresented in the time, but is is a uh, you know I, I would say to many people one of the greatest philosophers within the entire history of uh, of, of philosophy. But what was it? What, why did you think? Yeah, Nietzsche. This is who I'm 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 going to pin it of all the philosophers it could be. Initially, I was drawn to him because he's sort of famously unhappy, uh, and so part of the premise of my book was like thinking too hard makes you unhappy, which was a bit you know simple and juvenile, but. So I, when I was looking around, shopping around for philosophers to talk about, the great thing about Nietzsche is he did talk about envying animals because they weren't smart enough to think in complicated ways like mm. humans. That was a, He didn't write a lot about animal consciousness and animal thinking, but he definitely wrote that. And that became the sort of the jumping off point for the whole book was his jealousy and pity for animals for not being as smart as, as a human. And... How much has your understanding of Nietzsche changed as well by looking at his work in doing this book as well and writing this book and then connecting it to some of the other species that we've talked about and also just generally looking biographically at him? Yeah, I didn't know that much about him, to be honest, when I started. And so I, I talked to some Nietzsche scholars and, and had to figure out what he was all about as a person because I needed, you know, we always think of him as like a suffering philosopher. I'm like, well, what specifically why and what was going on? And I, I learned from a, a, strangely enough, there's a Nietzsche scholar who lives in my little town in the middle of nowhere in Nova Scotia. And he was like, oh, no, Nietzsche wasn't a miserable person. He, like, yes, he had some some mental health issues later on, but he was actually quite friendly. And like, he philosophized with a hammer, they say, or whatever. But in real life, he didn't use it. He was a polite man <laughs> for the most part. And so that's not the image you have of him. So that, was, that changed my mind. And then, of course, figuring out why what happened to him in the end of his life and reading the biographies to see like, well, what are the diagnoses? Where did he get to and how did he get there? That I learned a lot about that. And that's apparently still an open mystery as to what was going on with him. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code how to just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code how to to dive into the world of the arts like never before. Have you have you read uh, I Am Dynamite by Sue Prido? I know the name. 
but no. that's a great no. Nietzsche uh, biography. It came out quite recently. And one of the strange things is when you look at his relationship with Wagner, and Wagner would sometimes send him out to go and buy his silk underwear, which is kind of this image of Nietzsche suddenly shopping around for silk drawers for Wagner. I think changes both of them, puts them in a lot more of a kind of situation comedy uh, scenario. Yeah, I, I remember reading that passage when later on in Turin when he was sort of stuck in that apartment and sort of losing it. Like he was just naked, like not it's like singing Wagner operas or whatever, but not knowing how to play them or or knowing any of the lyrics correctly. And I just that, that's how I deal with pop music. I don't know the lyrics, but I like to sing them, usually not naked. But there's something endearing about a semi-naked uh, Nietzsche banging out <laughs> bad Wagner songs. Yeah, I think, yeah, they hit them and William Blake as well in the Garden of Eden. There's there's beautiful pictures there. Again, webs of possibilities. Um, now, of course, one of the hardest things when you're starting off by by looking at intelligence is, again, the definitions. The, like, like the definition of life. Every single time, if you ask a biologist to give a definition of life, they will give one that seems thorough until you go, oh, hang on, like crystals do as well, or whatever it will be. So in terms of the different ways that you were defining intelligence in this book, can you tell me, was there a kind of a journey from how you might have defined intelligence or tried to define intelligence when you started the book that has changed at, by by the, the, the end point? Yeah, I, you know, I wanted to provide the definition of intelligence, you know, what scholar doesn't want to do that. So I had a few and it was based on my understanding of animals, uh, because I was interested in animals. But then I was doing the research to see, well, how do the other fields define it? And then you get into psychology and you realize almost none of those definitions apply to animals really. But I wanted one that would also incorporate that. But more interestingly, the, and I talk about this in the book, like people who study artificial intelligence, who try and create artificial intelligence as a whole field, do not have an operational definition of intelligence at all. They aren't even sure what they're creating. They just happen to work under that field. So the thing I learned doing it is that truly nobody has a good definition. Even people working on intelligence professionally to create it don't, which is why in the book, I don't even provide a definition. I don't know if, you, like, it's very subtle. I get to the end of the whole introduction. I'm like, well, there's no actual definition. We all just know it when we see it. And that it, it, in that early chapter, you look at the idea of human beings being why specialists and and what you basically in each chapter of the book you you are quite often starting off with the negative and then finding you know, the, the the fact with the level of i suppose self-consciousness we have and intelligence we have it really is the returning to the the old kind of buddhist monk cliche the keys to heaven also open the gates to hell that's it i mean every chapter is finding that the, this amazing thing which is to some extent unique by, for, by, you know, in our species, or at least doesn't exist to the same extent, is a double-edged sword. It is providing something very beneficial. That's how it got there, through natural selection, uh, but also is probably going to kill us. And so each chapter is this sort of, um, this tension between the good and the bad of the thing. Why specialism? That's our interest in finding out cause and effect, why things happen. That's, that's what science is. I... I'm a science person. You're a science person. It's obviously great. We've got our whole careers based around this thing. That's how we get medicine or whatnot. It's good stuff. Uh, also, it probably is going to kill us in the end. So I, I'm in love with the thing that is most dangerous to my species. Yeah, I think, you know, as, as you say, that, you know, the why specialist is, you know, why do I exist? Why am I here? And why am I going to die? And, uh, you know, the, the, the size of the book required to start that conversation is, you know, is the size of the Library of Alexandria, really, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And that's why I put that as the right up front as the one thing that sort of defines what makes us what we are is our interest in asking why. And I always say about animals, like there are, you know, chimpanzees or ravens or whatnot in experiments that seem to be interested in cause and effect, but it really is the defining characteristic. And all we do is ask those big questions. Why, you know, why are we here? Why do we die? That is what makes us human. Well, if we're talking about cause and effect, let's talk about one of the things you talk about in that chapter, which is the uh, the string pulling paradigm, and uh, and this kind of brings us back to to cats to 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 some extent. Can you tell us what is the string pulling paradigm, and what does that tell us about the intelligence of different species? Yeah, it, it's been given to a number of species, birds most famously, and so the idea is there's some uh, there's food hanging at the end of a string, like on a branch, uh, and so the the let's say a crow needs to get the food closer so they have to pull the string up with one uh claw and then hold the string with the other claw and then pull it again so they have to keep pulling it to get it to come all the way up to them and so 
you know, it'd be difficult to learn that through trial and error. It might, you might accidentally find out, find out the method. But what you see for, for animals that pass it is that they sort of look at the problem. They understand the nature of what needs to be done mechanically to bring the food closer. And then they go through the process of pulling and holding and pulling and holding. And so the, one of the explanations, not everyone agrees, is that they understand cause and effect. They know that if I, do, if I pull here and hold here and wait here, I will get the thing. It is really fun. I've seen a a crow close up on a radio show that we were were doing once, where it was given various problems, and it's a really it's a fascinating thing to see how much your gaze changes on an animal when you see it displays of intelligence. That from that point onwards, no crow looked to me as it had done, you know, a couple of hours before. Suddenly that sense of the the, the levels uh, and complexity of cognition means the animal itself or the bird itself, it, it, it seems to almost change in its shape and form. It's true. And that's why if you spend a lot of time watching animals, this thing will pop out where you, you see like, oh, they do have intentions. They are engaging in cause and effect. They are doing something that is just like what a human would do. And then you can reframe all of the behavior you've seen before for that animal in the, under this new sort of umbrella of, of, of smart and a human-like way. So I, you know, I've seen that with, with lots of species. And I think we'll keep studying species and finding more examples of them doing those sorts of things. And all of us will be changing our opinions about what they're capable of. Now, the next one in terms of something which seems a, a, a very human capability is, and in fact, anyone who's been watching what's been going on in, in Westminster today, you probably won't know about it, but we're, we're having the kind of uh, some, some fun with the former prime minister. Oh, at the I've moment. seen him. He was very upset was he in the there wasn't what was the name of it uh the gate the something gate there's always a something yeah yeah it's, it's a it's kind of yeah there's some party gate uh, is that it we don't know that's right yeah, yeah i know what it is the, uh, <laughs> so many gates so many oh, oh if, if if water had known how many gates it would be making um the uh but, but that that the the ability to deceive because you know, you look at it first of all from the human perspective, and you look at it. You, you start. In fact, can you tell us? I forget his name now. The guy who basically did a, a better Ponzi scheme than Ponzi did. Oh yes. What is the name off of the top of my head? I can't remember. Um, it's in the book. You could probably. Find I've got it. the book right here. Yeah. Hang on a minute. I'll just flick to that page. It is. Uh, we've got. Oh, where's he gone? Where's he gone? It is. It is. Uh, yes. To be honest, isn't it? Yes. Uh, uh, the, here. Um, he was from Chicago. Yeah. Bayou Industry was the name of the thing. But um, yeah, essentially he this was a, he was operating in the time of Ponzi. Everyone knew about Ponzi at the time, which I found fascinating for this story. And then you had this guy, and he was selling his investors. Uh, you know, he, they would invest in land in South America and give him a bunch of money. And they were all like, "Wow, this is kind of like a Ponzi scheme." But then we trust you because you're you know it wouldn't be a Ponzi scheme, wouldn't that be ridiculous? Ha ha! Everyone had a good laugh. And then it turned out it was a Ponzi scheme and he was selling property that he did not own in, in South America. And he knew right exactly what he was doing, which was deceiving them and lying to them in a very specific and human-like way, which you have deception in the animal kingdom, but the way we do it is far more complicated. And in this case, quite sinister. Is it? I mean, it, it does seem sometimes it can feel quite depressing to see us making the same errors over and over again, that history does repeat itself, that we don't learn from history. And I wondered if you, you know, is it because sometimes the way the deceit is manufactured is done deliberately to affect us emotionally? So it kind of manages to, that you know, that, that, that thin veneer of our brain, which actually seems to be there at the end of everything, like Oliver Hardy going, hmm, well, I told you, you know, that seems to just not have the power sometimes. To, to go stop for a minute, 60%, you know, you're going to make these huge profits that the emotional and the desire for that. I think none of us individually want to believe that we're the person in the statistic, the one that got fooled, because we all think we are different. And that's why we keep playing the lottery, because we think, well, we'll be the one to win. Of course, you're not going to be the one to win. Uh, so I think that's what drives us forward. If we have a relationship, I will never believe that, that you could deceive me because we're friends and I've already judged your character. Uh, so that's different from a hypothetical of two people and being deceptive. So I think, I think our need to uh, have our relationships be real and not full of lies and we ourselves are, don't consider ourselves liars or bad people, that is what causes us to be continually 
uh, <laughs> deceived and flummoxed by other people. And then when do we see it in terms of the animal world? Like quite early on, you mentioned Batesian mimicry, which is this, this wonderful thing where the advantage of looking like something that's toxic or poisonous or deadly while not actually having to evolve all of those other attributes that are required to be toxic or deadly. Um, so that you would say is, is kind of a natural world level of deceit, but it's not. Uh, that's basically just th through mutation, heredity and natural selection. Yes, because that's sort of just baked into the animal. The animal itself doesn't have the vaguest idea that it's it's being confused for a toxic other animal. It's just going about its business, not being eaten. Good job. Um, so that's that's standard. So that shows you that within the communication system of the natural world, deception is normal. Uh, but then you get into a scenario where the animal is engaging in producing a behavior that itself is deceptive. Uh, like the piping plover pretending to have a, a, a broken wing to lead the predator away from its eggs. Uh, and so then the question is, well, do, do they know that they're lying? And then you get into this sort of spectrum of complicated uh, lying, like tactical deception, where you see like uh, uh, the, the story of the squid in the book, where you have this one sort of subordinate male squid, and it's pretending that it's a female by changing its coloration to fool other male squids into thinking that it's a female, but it's actually on the down low signaling to the females that it wants to mate. Uh, and it's tactical because the idea is maybe that squid understands what that other squid is looking at. And so that's when you get into lying. Because if I know, or if I'm making guesses as to what you're thinking, because that interests me, that's what humans do, I can then manipulate your thoughts through deception. And so that's where you get this whole spectrum of like having no idea that they're lying to 100% knowing that they're lying because they want something. Now, I know this isn't a self-help book, but do you feel that perhaps by reading this chapter, you know, the chapter on lying, that somehow it does tool you up with these senses of the, the different levels that our mind seems to work at? And that by then looking at it across other species as well, that it might give us some armament towards protecting ourselves more? Yes, I think if you dive into the research and you realize that we, because of our history, uh, as an animal that needs to communicate, most of the time are wired to believe because communication wouldn't work if we were wired, wired to be suspect of, of signals. And so in your brain is this idea that everything around you is true, that Robin is telling the truth. That's what my brain wants. Um, and if you accept that, then it becomes easier to understand that it, you will be fooled. Even though you know sometimes the world is unfair, like you have to be aware that you are very likely to be fooled. You could be being fooled right now. And you turn that lens on your own uh, self so that you're more skeptical. I think that's a useful lesson to accept that you can't think your way into not being deceived because we're all deceived all the time. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, it does seem like it, it, it almost does feel innate in human beings, which is sometimes when people are honest, and I don't mean in a mean way. I mean, if you ask someone how they are and uh, they really tell you and you really listen and you really take an interest uh, or you're honest sometimes about negative feelings you might have had for yourself or any of those things. I find that people can be quite surprised that we've not used the, the social artifice to speed our way through whatever the engagement is. Yeah, my, my wife is from the Netherlands. Uh, and so I spent a lot of time in the Netherlands and they are famously blunt people. So if you ask them how they're doing, they will often tell you and it is unpleasant. Uh, and so uh, I think that's fascinating to see that the, the wheels of society are often greased through lying, through pleasantries at the very least, or just you know tailing little, little white lies to make things move uh, faster. And sometimes when you get the Dutch kind of style, uh, things can, you know, they're more contentious and things will often grind to a halt socially. Uh, and so so what, lying is not always bad in that sense. It's part of what we do as a social species, unless you're Dutch. 
Yeah, well, it's an interesting because I, I, when I was uh, uh, over in Europe this weekend, someone was uh, go, going, oh, well, of course, the rudest people, it's actually a Swedish person said, the rudest people are the Swedish. But I don't find them rude. I just find them, again, avoiding the artifice. And if you have enough people in a room who, you know, are Dutch and Swedish and, you know, we might throw in someone Danish and Norwegian as well. Actually, you've saved a lot of what I would call, you know, time of, of, of falsity. You've just gone, oh, we've actually moved on to having proper conversation now. Oh, I think that's why they've become such great business people, because they don't waste any time. They just go right to the point and, the, you know, their medical and social systems are very functional because they're just getting to the point. So, yeah, it it, it can help in some cases, but like in Sweden, for example, like I spent a fair amount of time there. They, they're quite famously, and I love this idea, you think of them as cold because, you know, if you trip and fall, for example, on the ice, a Swedish person might not stop to help you up. But that's because they're being nice because they don't want to embarrass you by helping you get up when you've tripped and fallen because they're thinking about you. So a lot of the coldness, I think, in Scandinavia comes from people trying to be nice by not bothering you, which I very much appreciate, I have to say, as a cold-hearted person who probably would not help you up if you fell down. The, uh, it just sounds like an alibi for your rudeness, that, to be quite honest. And the fact you've had to write a whole book to get away with the fact you've left so many people lying on the ground yeah. uh, is, is, is is terrible. Uh, but it, it, there's a lovely, there's an, an Irish version of that, which is the difference between um, falling off a bar stool in Dublin and falling off a bar stool in London. That if you fall off the bar stool in London, you know, people just turn and go, ha, hey, you fell off the bar stool. And in Dublin, someone turns around and says, oh, I did that last week, which I love. I just think you know that way of just reaching out is uh, is, is is beautiful. Yep. I also now we're in bars. Actually, I'll use this as a, a, an awkward media style segue. But drinking as well. Now this is interesting. Which is you know one of the things that shows our internal life is that quite often when people are drunk, a lot of again the niceties disappear and a lot of the front this kind of armament disappears and we see another side of someone, which means that they're, you know, we are able to see, start to see the multitudes. Um, and you talk in the book that this is also elephants as well, that we see this. Yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of pictures on the internet of drunk elephants, like elephants that got into a berry patch and it, you know, it fermented and then they got drunk and passed out. Uh, and there are countless examples of animals looking for intoxicants, presumably in order to feel uh, drunk or, or feel very different. And it's always an argument to be used for the existence of consciousness and that if the animal is seeking mind-altering drugs, the idea is it must have a mind to alter in the first place, which I think is a pretty solid argument. It's actually one of the major arguments for the existence of, of consciousness in animals. Um, but it it is fascinating because because why? Yes, it, some of these release, release endorphins and they produce this feeling of, of euphoria, and I love this idea of, have you heard the drunken monkey hypothesis? Do you know that thing? Where part of part of the explanation for how humans got to where we are is that we started drinking alcohol a very long time ago around the campfire, got really drunk, and that helped us get rid of all this thinking that we do and just like have sex. Uh, so it, it really greased the wheels of interactions and made us a more social species. Uh, and and part of the, part of our evolution is our need to have had alcohol to shut off the thinky part of our our brains. Which I you know maybe that's what elephants are on their way toward getting drunk. Eventually they're going to invent uh, you know rockets. See that's interesting because I I'm I'm not sure this is just an early idea, but in terms of. Some of the cultures where there are arranged marriages are cultures where also there's no tradition or indeed sometimes religiously you're not allowed to drink alcohol. So I wonder if by removing that, it just meant that there was such an impediment. Because as we know, certainly in the UK, the US, and I'm afraid Canada as well, as you said, the uh, the, the the wheels of, of social congress and beyond are very often uh, forged over the fifth point. That, you know, yeah, and I mean, that's a per you have all the data right there. You should publish on that because that sounds right. And just from having spent time in Sweden, I can say, because they're also, again, very sort of standoffish, a bit cold or whatever. And then in the weekend it comes up and they just get very, very drunk. And then that's when all of the fun things happen. The only way Swedes have managed to mate and create more Swedes is thanks to, I think, alcohol. Sorry, Sweden, yeah. <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, you know, we, we, we got to sex, so now we'll go straight to death. Uh, the um, Which is, again, this our understanding of death, there's a very interesting idea, which I, I think I, I would agree with you, which, which is basically about 
why culture requires death to be something that is imagined and known in in the mind of the creator. Yeah, what's interesting about death is it seems to be knowledge that only humans have. Uh, not that animals don't understand something about death. And there's a great philosopher, Susanna Munso, who talks about this, and there are others, saying there's sort of a spectrum of understanding about what death is. A lot of, a lot of animals, even insects, might know the difference between a living and a dead thing. Um, that's fine. But then you get to us. And not only do we know what death is, we have this extra ability of knowing that we, ourselves, will inevitably one day die. And that's a lot of knowledge. That's a pretty big burden, and it's unique to our psychology because we can think about the future. We have an understanding of ourselves as an, an impermanent thing. And that information really, I mean, there's so many authors who write about this, have created culture and society as we see it, as we're constantly grappling with that knowledge, worrying about our own lives, our own meaning, trying to make things that make us immortal, worrying about our future generations, etc. That's a uniquely human thing to do because of that knowledge. I think my favorite opening line of any Beckett play is birth was the death of him, which I just think is what, what, a, what, a, what a whammy line that is. But you, you, you talk in, in the beginning of that chapter about, uh, and I'm going to get the name wrong. I think it's Talika or Talika. Oh, Taliqua, the, the, uh, the whale. Yeah. An author, yeah. Can you tell us that, that, that story again in, in how that changed our perception of, of, of an orca's understanding of, of uh, death? Yeah, she was a, a killer whale living in, off in the Pacific, northern Pacific, and, and she had a calf that had died. It, I think it had been born dead, or at least not long after it had died. And she carried it around on her, on her rostrum, on the top of her head, on her beak, for weeks and weeks and weeks at a time. And she wasn't even really eating all that much. She was just carrying this baby up toward the surface. And it certainly seemed like to all the researchers that she was mourning the death of her baby. She was sad about this baby uh, having died. And so that sparked a sort of international dialogue about the nature of grief and mourning and whether or not animals can grieve and mourn. And there's lots of anecdotes of animals expressing behavior that looks like grief. And so this was just a really powerful example of, of a very sad, grieving mother whale. Eventually, she let the body go, and she went back to normal, and, and now she's, she's doing okay, as far as I know. But yeah, if, if an animal can grieve, and they have an understanding of death, the question is, like, what does that mean about their psychology? And, and does that change the way we should be behaving toward them? Yeah, I find that really... I remember going to Paynton Zoo once and seeing uh, a, a baboon there, uh, her baby had died. And again, there was a little warning saying she would be continuing to carry her baby around for a while. So you might you might be seeing that. Mm. Yeah, the uh, primates show that an awful lot as well. There's the great apes especially. And so then that's why you always associate that with intelligence. Killer whales are, are the largest dolphin species. They're you know, so similar to us socially and then and, and like we talked about before and their ability to use symbols. Um, and so the, the more intelligent species often have these mourning behaviors. Uh, that we see, which seems to coincide with a more complicated understanding of what death means. Mm. No, I found that that's absolutely fascinating. That chapter. The um, I also I wanted to just talk a little bit more again about the uh, our changing perception of animals because before we started, we were just having a quick chat about Jane Goodall, and and I think of how much our understanding of chimpanzees changed just by her work alone. That. Yeah, you know, how have I mean by, by going to Gombe, by by being in the forest, by discovering? I, th I think she used to say that she'd always considered that chimpanzees were a little bit better than humans, kind of just in the way they were. And then, of course, she saw incredible levels of brutality, and she saw cannibalism, and she went, "I, you know, I think we might be as bad as each other." But it had taken, you know, it, it took her perception and her tenacity to start to change it. So, how do you feel over the last century? our ability to start interpreting and understanding the complexity of other species behavior um, has changed, moved on. What are the ways, what are the new ways that we should see being used more often? Yeah, certainly in, in her time period, uh, before she was out and writing about chimpanzees, you had, you know, behaviorism, these ideas in, in the study of animal minds that they, they do not have any internal minds whatsoever. They don't think in that sense. They're just sort of, you know, cause and effect reaction machines. And if you were to be a Jane Goodall type of scientist, you would just go out 
and you'd be recording their behavior, but you do not engage in anthropomorphizing them. You do not think of them as little humans or behaving like humans. Any behavior that you see that's complicated is probably explainable by a more simplistic uh, behavioral explanation cognitively. And she changed that to, to some extent, uh, it was she, uh, personally, herself, her career, because she would name the chimpanzees, you know, and she would talk about them and describe their behavior in human-like ways. And that was sort of the start of a change in the way that we as scientists were looking at animals. We would then accept that it's possible they do have complicated thoughts or something along the lines of self-awareness or consciousness, and that that does explain why they do what they do. So it's been a slow evolution over the past 50 years, moving away from these mechanistic explanations uh, to a more nuanced and more correct understanding of animal minds as being human-like in the sense that they possess a lot of cognitive traits that we never would have thought that they would have had 60 years ago. Complex traits. And just before we get on to uh, audience questions, thank you. We've got a few coming already, and, and please do send in if you have anything you'd like to ask based on, on what we've been talking about or, or something else as well. When you deal with morality, the chapter on moral morality, and the difficulty human beings have, and I presume also we see it in the animal world, which is when something deviates from what is considered to be a societal norm so how do first of all you know what would you use as a good in, in terms of, of of human behavior uh in terms of something that deviates um that we yeah what, what what from a societal norm yeah. yeah i i have a number of examples in the residential schools here in canada but like i used homophobia as the as the best example because in the animal kingdom, you know, there's plenty of research to, sh to show that like same-sex behavior of any kind, whether or not it's mating or just affection or raising a baby together, is fairly common, fairly widespread from insects all the way up through mammals. We see it all over the place. And in no, in no society in the animal world do we find that it's, it's a problem. They're, they're not punished for engaging in same-sex behavior, but humans, humans do. Uh, and there are lots of places around the world historically and at the moment that will punish anything uh, same-sex related for different reasons. I mean, there are a lot of reasons, but they always sort of go back to it's different than it should be or it's different than what you would normally see and expect. Uh, so humans are unique in wanting to punish something that is a pretty normal behavior uh, simply because it deviates from the norm. And that can, that's into the question of, well, uh, okay, well, how do we arrive at these moral conclusions about what is good and what is bad? Is that do you, do you think those humans is is this a problem that there are still people who believe they have an access to an objective truth in in perhaps in some ways as well that we look at other species and I think some people think that the way that we experience the world is the nearest to the objective truth and the way that an ant experiences the world or the way that something uses that uses sonar experiences the world or something with eight eyes experiences the world that is not the correct world that we have a, a privileged position. Yeah, I mean, there's two ways to think of that. I mean, we have privilege in that we have science, so we can we can find things in the world that are beyond our sensory systems, you know. So yes, uh, we do have privileged scientific information, but when it, that's usually not related to morality. But the moral side about how the world really is and, and why it matters is usually based in some sort of faith, uh, some supernatural ideology. And that is seemingly unique to our, our species and is often the source and justification for moral positions of all kinds, some of which are good, many of which are very, very bad. There's, uh, there's so many uh, moral positions you can rationalize yourself into using the moral framework based on your, your scripture or your God's beliefs, etc. Um, that, you know, if we look at it 100 years later, we're like, oh my God, that was terrible. We justified genocide and we wouldn't do that anymore. Um, more often than not, that's religious as opposed to secular beliefs, although secular societies reach bonkers conclusions as well. Yeah, it's a fascinating thing, is that how often morality is actually basically a uh, used to just uh, ensure power. Uh, we're seeing that in Uganda uh, today with something that just went through the uh, the, the parliament there. And uh, I think we're seeing it UK, U US, Hungary, all over the place at the moment. Um, we've got the first few questions coming. Now, this is Carmen would like to know. She says, I'm sure I can hear the hum every night when it's quiet of the universe known as the Om in Hinduism. Do you think I'm hearing this or am I nuts? Uh, and I don't think you're nuts, by the way. I, I, I think that's a very interesting because 
again, I think so much of our experience of the world is subjective and that sometimes we pick up on things and 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 part of that is the creative creativity of our imagination, which makes the world a richer place. Um, I wonder what, what your reaction to that is. Uh, to hearing the hum of the universe and whether or not you're nuts? No, I, it depends on what you define as nuts. Like if you're a functional contributing member of society that is harming no one and providing help, then uh, you're probably cool uh, if your daily life is not bothered by the hum. So uh, whether or not, I guess your question is like, whether or not is that hum real? Well, then we get into this question of, well, what is real? Like you say, our perceptual sensory systems are specific to our species and often specific to our individuals. Uh, so what is that hum in your life? Is Are you the person who can hear the hum of the universe? It's entirely possible. So I don't think it's crazy. I think it's fine. It would be crazy if you then killed your neighbor because they couldn't hear the hum. That would be bad. See, I think that's a very, again, going back to the William Blake thing, one of the things that I love about William Blake is that he could have different levels of experience, and some of them were entirely true, but he also accepted they were only true for him. So he knew that the angels were in the tree, but he wouldn't persuade you that you could see them because he knew that the angels weren't in the tree for you. Ben, and I think, you know, being able to, to lose that level of tribalism, being able to just go, well, hang on a minute. I am experiencing this, but I don't have to persuade everyone else that it's reality because it's mine. Gosh, I, yes, that is beautiful. And I wish it was more like that. But it's, you know, when you walk through the streets of a city and you've got 20 people proselytizing and telling you what you need to believe, it gets pretty exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, This is from John. John says, uh, could you share some of your thoughts on the intelligence of an octopus? For some, they are the closest thing to an intelligent alien we will ever encounter with arms, with their own semi-independent intelligence. And yet they have no theory of mind, perhaps no phenomenal consciousness. So how do you feel about that? Yeah, octopuses are a fantastic example, exactly because they have this sort of, um, you know, multifaceted neuronal system. They don't have like a single brain doing all the stuff. They have a lot of neurons in their arms, which operate independently, which is weird. So how are they able to create their form of uh, intelligence through this bizarre system? Um, that's a great question. Also, they're not a particularly social species, and most species that we consider intelligent are very social, like ravens and crows and, and humans, uh, dolphins, etc. So that's weird. So how is it that they're so good at solving problems and, and doing, like I was talking about before, that deceptive behavior that you see in cuttlefish? How are they so good at that? Where did their intelligence come from? Uh, it's a great question. And then the question of whether or not they are conscious self-aware um that has not been answered there's certainly a lot of people who would argue that they have a level of awareness and consciousness which would rival um dolphins and humans etc now the next we'll count the next one as the voltaire question uh would justin say he's a misanthrope so uh now, yeah, I'm interested. I don't know exa exactly where, where this has come from, but it's, uh, and would he say that misanthropy is necessarily a bad thing? I, when I'm, depending on the day, I would consider myself a misanthrope, for sure. Uh, but that's mostly just me complaining about the guy in front of me, you know, at the, the grocery store who's taking forever to pull change out of his purse or whatever. Um, but most of the time, no. If you look at my regular everyday behavior, I'm quite nice to people and empathic. So I'm only misanthropic in an intellectual kind of way. But in my daily life, I'm quite a, a good thrope. A euthropic person? I don't know what kind of person that would be. But then the bigger question is like, is, is humankind good or bad? Hmm, well, then there's a whole different conversation. So I'd say, well, we may, humanity might be bad for itself and the planet, but that's a different kind of misanthropy. Yeah, euthropic is uh, that definitely has, I think, the makings of a third uh, book. Ulysses and a euthropism, something like that. Sounds, I'm, I'm, I'm it sure sounds there's, like there's a kind a, of bladder infection. I'm not sure whether euthropic. It doesn't sound good. I think that perhaps uh, misanthropes as well. Sometimes it, it it may be a bladder issue as well. It, it may even be something Freudian that leads to misanthropy. We'll we'll work this out when we co-write the book together. Okay, Justin. great. It'll be fine. <laughs> Um, this uh, question I'm not going to name for this one, but how do you want the world to change in response to your book? So, what would you? What, what's the hope you have of of, of an audience's reaction? Uh, I really want people to give your average animal uh, more credit for being smarter and therefore worth more than you normally would. So, whether or not that's like an insect or your house cat or whatever animal you bump across, I would just love you to be like, okay. Maybe they're not as smart as a human, but maybe being a human kind of smart is bad. So this cat is a, is more valuable than my 
uncle, for example. Ugh, that's a weird example. But you know what I mean. This cat has value. I like my uncles. They're great. I don't know why I threw them under the bus. I was going to say father-in-law, but uh, that'd be worse. Giving them more uh, uh, credit for being functional good members of the universe. That's what I want. I think we found out what euthropic means. I think it's something about uh, an unconscious uh, fear or dislike of your uncle. That sounds Freudian again. Everything is... Yeah, it's always Freudian. (laughs) Oh, we'll get on to Jungian things in a minute. I'm sure there'll be a question about flying saucers or something like that. Uh, Carmen would like to know, uh, who do you find your most inspiring scientist? And also, what are you reading from your tidy bookshelf behind you? very impressed by your bookshelf. Oh, thank you. That's uh, it's heavily curated. My actual book reading pile is about 17 books next to my bed and on the floor. Uh and I'm what am I reading? I'm reading Neuromancer. You know that book Neuromancer? So I, it's, William Gibson. Yeah, and I'd never read it, yeah, so I'm yeah. just I need to know the origins of like, you know, all the matrix and whatnot. So that's what I'm currently reading. Um what was the other part of the question? Uh, do, do you have a, a scientist oh. that's particularly inspired you? I think Franz Duval. I think of all the scientists, his writing has been um it's great. He's been very influential in my field of study as well. Like a lot of his research is relevant to what I'm doing. And I just, I love him as a communicator. He's been, um, he's been a really great science communicator. So I think Franz Duval, he's definitely my top pick. Although Carl Sagan, <laughs> love him. The, uh, what, uh, Franz Duval, wasn't one of his first books on, on chimpanzee politics. Yeah. And that was like, it was very popular, but it was popular in like the U.S congress where people were like using it to justify being terrible to each other or good i'm not sure so yeah he got a lot of clout that way but uh, chimpanzee politics was a pretty big deal at the time uh, our next question is to what extent do you think our human perception of animal intelligence has been biased by our desire to protect ourselves from moral responsibility towards animals a thousand percent uh because we do all sorts of terrible things to animals uh and so it's kind of hard to do a bad thing a violent mean thing to an animal if you also give it the same moral or intellectual worth as as like a human child so you have to place them in different categories which allow that you know you have to build up a bit of a wall sometimes when you're looking at animal behavior uh so that you don't uh, so you can protect yourself from the way that you you treat them that's that's a common i think a very common thing and i love this the legislation in the united states for example where um you have all these animals that are used in research still like lab rats and whatnot and the, and the way they get around this problem is that they do not classify them as animals. So no animal welfare uh, laws apply to animals used in ex- experiments. So that's, that's how they get around the moral issue, by weird legal wrangling. So yeah, it changes the way we, we investigate them and which species we look at. Uh, John would like to know if you think that life on Earth uh, would benefit from human extinction. I mean, is there a doubt? I feel like that's pretty straightforward. Like if we were, like we've caused so much damage and it just just to ex- extinction for the animals right now and in the future, I would imagine that there'd probably be more, but depending on how you frame that, you cannot argue anything other than there would be more biodiversity if we were not here. That has to be a truism. Mm. The, uh, the Fermi paradox, discuss. So if there are, if for those who don't know, if, if intelligent life is out in the universe, how come it hasn't got in contact with us then? Uh, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a brief uh, half-hour summary of that. Uh, what do you reckon? Well, I mean, I love that in the, the early days of SETI, you know, when they were working on how to contact the animals or whatever, it, or aliens, it was all about radio signals. They're like, well, find radio signals. But if you think about the history of our own species, I don't know, we've been around 250,000 years. Like, we did radio for a few decades, but now we're switching over to other stuff. We're not even using radio for communication anymore. We're certainly not sending out very far signals to try and communicate. So like, if you're attempting to find aliens by looking for radio signals, that's just dumb. Because that's probably not how they're communicating with us or, or other things. So maybe that's the nature of the paradox. I don't know. Also, why? Why would they want to contact? Maybe there are other species that are happy being left alone, like like misanthropes like me. I'd I'd rather be left alone. That's why I've always wondered that bit that you could have a creature that's both curious and satisfied enough at the same time that it goes, let's just stay here and make it nice. Yeah. 
you know, we, we don't have to have to escape from here. Yeah, that's exactly it. Like, maybe they just have a beautiful functioning society. They don't need external validation by having some aliens show up and be like, oh, you guys are doing a good job. Maybe they're just happy. Maybe that's the answer to the paradox. Their aliens are happy. <laughs> the uh, As you're on science fiction, by the way, reading Neuromancer, uh, have you read Roadside Picnic? Uh, no. Is it good? Uh, just on this, I Igor and uh, Boris Stragatsky. And that the starting point of that is the aliens, right? They, they visit the Earth, but they don't even notice us. They literally pull in, use us as a lay-by to have their picnic, leave all their rubbish out the window, which, of course, is way beyond the technology that we have, and create all these strange zones. Uh, if, if you would, you know, when you finish Neuromancer, if you're looking for another science fiction, I highly recommend uh, Igor and Boris Stragatsky. Okay, I'll put it on the pile. The uh, make it 18 books tonight. I'm glad that we have. Uh, uh, Leonie wonders, do you think your book risks bringing humans down too much? Um, nope, I don't think so, because I don't know what that would actually be. Uh, I don't think anyone is starting a new religion based on my book where they are justifying uh, extinguishing other people. I think that we're in for a bit of a humbling when it comes to the nature of our intelligence. Um, and there's hope in the book in that, like, like, yes, maybe we our intelligence is dangerous, but knowing that will allow us to make better decisions and, and be better people and better to the planet. So I think um, I think it's okay, it's okay to go down a few pegs. I'm not too worried that we're going to go too far. Plus, I mean, when is when has humanity ever gone too far down those ladders to say like, ah, we're, you know, insects are better than us. That's not going to happen. Yeah, it's like those moments where they go, I'm a little bit worried that everyone's become too equal. And then you kind of look out the window and you go, well, no, I think there's a lot of work to be done. But I, I have to say with the book, I, I didn't feel like that at all. I, I really felt, I, I love the fact that it, it makes so many connections all the time. I, I think that sense of having a greater connection to all living things and in different ways and being able to think, you know, when you look at different creatures as well, thinking about somewhere on a tree we have a shared common ancestor and you can even include sunflowers or whatever in that i think that actually if anything makes gives a stronger desire to preserve all living things i think you're right because it, it we, we no longer are like different from the rest of the world you know we've, this has been a common problem we are outside of the natural world this is saying like no 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 we're just we're all part of it and we're not even the best part of it we're just part of it i think that's only helpful and we've got one more, which is, we've got a few more. I don't, I don't think we're going to get through all the questions. I apologize for that. But we've got one, which is, you talked at the start about uh, dolphin science beginning in the ridiculous and unscientific work of John Lilly. Uh, who are the other wacky and fun figures in animal cognition studies? Now, also, we should say that when we were talking uh, about uh, John C. Lilly, that, that there is also an importance sometimes in, in maverick scientists and scientists that might seem quite eccentric because they can sometimes be the drive that sometimes you have to do something which can seem quite absurd to then return to go, ah, hang on, this is an area to explore. It's true. And and John Lilly's work ended up being wacky in some of the things that he did, but his general ideas, this idea that dolphins have exceptionally large brains and maybe they're smart, that's more or less been true since he first was writing about it. So he he really did create the field uh, of dolphin cognition, our interest in them uh, as something other than just weird fish as potentially really intelligent mammals. Um, so yeah, he was he was both, you know, a bit wackadoodle toward the end, but his ideas were, were, were sound. And even the experiments in the 60s of trying to teach dolphins English, it sounds insane now, but it's totally what we were, all scientists were doing at the time with chimpanzees or whatnot. It just sounds weird with, with dolphins. So yeah, there's so many. I mean, if you think about it, like who are the guys who won, who who determined that the Heliobacter was the cause of ulcers? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I had him on a show once. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's he's yeah. like yeah. that's yeah. crazy. Like siphoning off someone's gastric juices, drinking it to prove that you're right. Like that's that you just put that person in the category of nuts, but also brilliant. So sometimes nuts and brilliant go hand in hand. Yeah, he's so good. He's, we had him on a show, and I was quite surprised. I expected him to be like the kind of crocodile Dundee of Nobel Prize winners, but he's a very calm and quiet person, save for the neon T-shirt, which expresses uh, his uh, award-winning um, ideas. That's the one bit allowed there is. Um, we've got a nice short question for the end. Uh, what makes us human? Uh, our DNA, I guess. 
great. I knew you'd find a way of doing a short because that that really this this is like that that that's how every single one of the uh, How to Academy uh, conversations start. Let's just get a get a couple of things covered. First of all, let's just work out what does make us human. Many years later, <laughs> the single Zoom broadcast kicked on. Justin, your book is excellent. So it, it's uh, if Nietzsche were a novel, it's available now. And it has, I mean, there's so much we could have touched on there. And as you said, the cuttlefish story goes in many places. There's there's not merely one crow in this as well. There's uh, there's a, a, a jackdaw, I think, somewhere in here. It might not be a jackdaw. I can't remember which one it was. There was, uh, anyway, there's, there's a lot about humanity, a lot about philosophy. And there is a lot, what I like about it is you finish each chapter in a position of contemplation. I don't really mean you, but I mean as a reader. It changes the world that you see. That's great to hear. Yeah, I, I didn't want to provide answers. I just wanted to provide uh, more questions and 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 weird anecdotes. I love that. There was a, I, I can't remember who it was who told me a lovely story of, again, another Nobel Prize winning physicist who felt that the reason he'd ended up there was every day that he got back from school, his mother would say, did you ask any good questions? Brilliant. I think that's a exactly. great Exactly. I love it. Justin, have a wonderful day in Nova Scotia. Everyone, highly recommend this book. Do check out what's coming up on How To Academy soon. Uh, there's always loads of stuff. And I think also there's going to be a return to, uh, well, I think they've already returned, actually, live events as well. Uh, so not really, I mean, this is live, but what I mean is that you actually turn up and you see they're not really AI creations of us, which, of course, we have actually been all along during this uh, long period of lockdown that also led to all of these. So thank you very much. Thank you to the How To Academy. And thank you most of all to Justin. Well, thank you for having Bye-bye. me. Bye-bye, everybody. This week's episode starred Justin Gregg and was presented by Robin Ince. The show is edited by John Doughty and produced by me and Esme Bright. We have help from Nicole Wong. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>